This is your coffee break. Mm-hmm. I've been there. Wait, really? Uh-huh. For what? Um, I was there because I knew a writer who lived in uh, Rapid City. Very cool. Dan O'Brien. Do you know who he is? No clue, but that is I awesome. I think he still lives there, and we traveled all over South Dakota, so Sioux Falls was one of the places that we went. So. That's awesome. What'd you think? Or, like, was it a long time ago? Because it's changed a lot. It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Um, he he was fascinating. He was a novelist and a endangered species biologist. Really? So he, um, yeah, so he would save, like, falcons and rehabilitate them, and then he would write novels about it. It was really awesome, actually. So oh we gosh. went, we did a lot of falconing in South Dakota. That was really cool. We did a lot of falconing in South Dakota. Not exactly, you know, something that one hears every day. That is awesome. It's kind of my dream job. Did you ever read My Side of the Mountain? Like as a child? Oh, Uh -uh. it's this awesome children's book about this kid who lives in the mountains. He like runs away from home and he like makes, it's very survivalist. And so I was really into it. And he makes like a house out of a tree and like has a pet falcon. And it's just awesome sounding but i'd probably die but it sounds awesome well have you ever have you ever done it have you ever actually been falconing no like what do you do do you put on the glove and you know well i didn't do anything because i'm a guy from new york so like i'm like uh but he yeah he has the falcon and he puts a little um hood over its eyes you know and then he puts it on his arm then he had dogs and the dogs would flush out grouse or like some kind of you know sort of sagebrush kind of bird and they would fly up, and and then he would just let the um, falcon go up. And the falcon – actually, I get it wrong. He would let the falcon go up first. Oh, gotcha. And the falcon would disappear. Like, you couldn't see it anymore. And then he would make the birds flush the birds with dogs. And then you just wait, and the falcons would come out of nowhere and just boom, and they would hit the bird and kill it. Oh, and it was, like, really – it was spooky. It was really amazing. <laughs> so, so what's the purpose was, of the hood? Like, just <clears throat> so it doesn't get distracted or, or try to try to leave or – yeah, yeah, yeah. So you want to calm the falcon. I don't. They're not that smart of birds. So you know, you just kind of oh. like close up the world to them, and then they they chill out. And then when you pop it open, they like take off. Huh. So yeah. that's amazing. Anyway. See, like who knew we would start by talking about falconing? Of that's falconing. amazing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, um, I'm so glad that you uh, agreed to be on the show. This is going to be, a, I think, a really fun conversation. Do you go? Do you prefer Drew or Andrew or Mr. Chapman or? Oh my God, not Mr. Chapman. Anything <laughs> but Mr. Chapman. Um, so Andrew is my regular old name. Drew is a name that people often call me, but was specifically asked for by the publishing house because there was an existing Andrew Chapman who I think he's like a sci-fi novelist in Australia. He's pretty obscure, but he has a Amazon an author page. The most important thing for book sales is when you type in the author's name, the first person that comes up is the one that you want. And so they're like, you have to find a different, a slightly different name. So Drew was the simplest. So, but so for television, I just do Andrew when I'm writing TV, but, and for books, Drew, eventually it's confusing and people are like, what is this? But you know, whatever, someday I'll figure it out and have it be one thing. (laughs) You are writing um, a book in three parts, and I think that's so interesting. It's called The King of Fear, and tell me a little bit about how you decided to break it up into three parts and just where that came from. 
So that actually wasn't my idea. That was my publisher's idea, Simon & Schuster. And how did it come about exactly? I think that they know that I do a lot of TV work, and they think that the books that I write, when they're broken up into chapters, those chapters have sort of cliffhanger endings, you know, that are very that are sort of similar to like a commercial break in a television show or the end of an episode in a television show. And I think the idea from their point of view is that publishing, you know, it was trying to become as modern a business as they possibly can, given what they do is so ancient, you know, and it's sort of core concept. So they're always looking for like some new sort of, I don't want to call it a marketing hook, but a, a way to generate excitement for their readers and to sort of, you know, just to do something new to shake it up a little bit. So I think that was the basic idea. My editor asked me at, at the beginning of writing my second book, because this is the second one, you know, would I be open to that? And at first I was a little like, oh, maybe I want this to be a book, though, not a television show. But then as I sort of thought about it, I was like, yeah, OK, I can totally do that. And I think it could be fun and we'll see. And um, so I wrote it in sections. I wrote the book in sections, obviously to be a whole book, but so that there were natural breaks in the sort of story where you could go, OK, that's the end of the first part, the end of the second part. So it is in three sections. The last section actually comes out today, January 5th. Um, and then the whole thing comes out as a paperback in February. So you can get the whole thing. So, but it's also like a little bit of a throwback to, you know, I mean, like Dickens published in, you know, serialized form in newspapers and it isn't unheard of or like groundbreaking. It's just sort of like a twist. And honestly, I don't really know what the results are. I mean, you know, some readers have written me emails and said, hey, you know, what's going on? I paid $2.99 and it's only the first part of the book. I want the whole thing. To which I have to go, well, really sorry, but, you know, this is our thing. And other people have been like, hey, this is great. This is so much fun. I can't wait for the next one to come out. And so I would say that, honestly, the response has been a little 50-50. Like, that's sort of been the break. But then there's been a whole other category of people who are like, I don't read books on, you know, as e-readers. I just wait till the whole thing comes out as a real book and I'll buy it then. Fair enough. So it's just out in three parts digitally and then it'll be published uh, physically in a hard copy as one volume then? Exactly. Yeah. Very cool. So the first, if it came out November, then the second section in December, the final section today, January, and then in February is the whole thing. I kind of love that idea. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fun. And if you're willing to go for the sort of the fun thing, then that works. But if you're, if you're a traditionalist and you're like, no, I want my, I want to be able to read the whole thing when I want it, then it, it's, you know, this gets into the whole question of, and not to go all geek on you, but like, it's, it's sort of like a television show, right? So, you know, now they have network television shows that's on Wednesday at 8 o'clock and the next episode is the next Wednesday at 8 o'clock. Or there's Netflix where they just drop the whole show on one day and you watch it whenever you want. Um, you can binge over the course of two days or you can spread it out over a month or two, you know. So I think that whole form of just storytelling, it's kind of changing. It's, it's kind of like there's new ways to go about it. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about that, because you've transitioned and you're still writing for TV. Is that correct? Yeah, I just finished um, working on a TNT show called Legends that has been out over the last couple of months. So, yeah, I, I work in TV all the time. I sort of split my time, TV, novels, 50-50. Cool. That was going to be my question. And and I'm, I'm really interested in sort of the differences there as you're writing. I mean, one is maybe a little bit more collaborative. One is not. I mean, can you can you tell us a little bit about maybe not necessarily the transition since you're doing both of them, but how how do you approach each of those differently? 
it, there are similarities and differences. So the differences are for sure the collaboration part. I mean, as a TV writer, you you know you're working with a producer, you're working with a studio, you're working with a network, and you know a lot of times I just write. I'll I'll create a show and write a pilot for a network, and then they either pick it up or they don't pick it up. When they don't pick it up, you're not really collaborating. You just wrote the pilot and then you go on to the next project. But when you actually your show gets picked up, or if I work on a staff, I don't know what you know about television writing, but they hire a staff of writers. And so those writers all sit down in a room and, you know, we spend, you know, a month or two just literally sitting in a room figuring out what the show is. And so that's incredibly collaborative. I mean, you know, you can't get more in terms of storytelling, more collaborative than that. Everyone's just throwing out ideas and like, how about this? How about that? And so it's, it's very collaborative and you're really throwing stuff out there and you're working with other writers and that's fun. I mean, it's really, that's like, that's the best part of television writing is just you have all these other writers in a room with you and they all come from different backgrounds and you're all just trying to figure it out. I mean, it sucks if the other people are not pleasant. It's like going to a job where you have a coworker that you hate, but most mm-hmm. of the time they're carefully chosen and, and you really like them. So that's that's the wonderful part of it. The bad part of it is it's not necessarily your own. It's not, you know, it is a collaborative thing. And, and the other thing is you're writing a blueprint, right? You're writing this script that then goes to a director and then goes to an actor and a production designer and all these people are like tweaking it and making it different. And when you finally see the finished product, it can be a surprise. I mean, you're like, oh, I wouldn't have made that choice or, oh, that's not exactly how I would have done it. But a lot of times as a TV writer, you're also a producer. So you're, you're going through the process at every you know step. You, you sit with the director, you go, look, this is how I think you should do it. This is the way it would work. And then you're with the actors and you go, you know, that line reading is not quite right. And it can feel less like it's your voice, but in the end, it really is your voice. Uh, on the opposite side, you know, writing a book is entirely your voice. It's not like I don't get notes from an editor. I do, and from and I give it to other people, and I say, what do you think? Should I change this? I mean, I'm very – I'm collaborative that way. I like to mm-hmm. get other people's opinions. It's very helpful. You know, it's just you in a room. And if you can't figure it out, you're – you know, sometimes you're like, God, I wish I had a staff of people to help me figure out this book because I do not know where it's going. So that is part of the difference. I will say that because I learned to write as a TV writer, not as a novelist, I'm very, I, I'm like an outliner and mm. a rewriter and a plotter. So when I come up with an idea for a book, you know, I really think about it. I make lots of notes and then I do exactly what I would do when I'm writing a television show, which is I like plot out all the scenes with little cards. I stick them up on the wall. I move them around. You know, my kids are like, oh, God, there goes dad again. He's like working on a book. And I just spend days just like moving the scenes around and thinking about it and asking people, you know, would this happen? Would that happen? And so I'm not one of those people who just sits down at the typewriter or the word processor and just like writes whatever comes into my head. I need to know what's going to happen. I need to know every scene. I need to know where the whole thing is going to end up. If I don't know those things, I, I get stuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, those are the sort of core differences between the two. The other thing that I have to say, it's always, and this gets into sort of the business side of it, but also the relationship side that you have to your audience. You know, in television, when you're a TV writer, you never speak to the people who watch your show. I mean, sometimes, you know, your friend says, hey, I caught your show last night. It was good. Or, oh, that episode kind of sucked or whatever, you know. But you don't have any interaction with an audience. But when you write a book... People love to talk to you about it. They love to send you emails, say, hey, I love your book, or oh, you made this horrible mistake on page you know, 73, and you're like, oh, crap. And I love that. The, the interaction with people is like some of my favorite stuff. And, and going to readings and doing podcasts and talking to people, it's just like 
it's you know it's, it gets me out of my cave and it makes me feel like I actually am interacting with the world and that is fantastic. That is awesome and very 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 well said. When you're working on novel writing, do you do that from home or do you like go to an office somewhere or I'm one of those people that can work pretty much anywhere. I do have an office, but then so I live in Seattle and I um spend about half my time in LA when I'm working on a television show obviously. So I do both. I have an office. I go to the office and I can like work, but I can also do it in my living room. I could do it in a coffee shop. I'm like, I totally don't care. When I'm working, I'm just focused. The great thing is when you're on a television show, they rent offices for you and the, you know, they buy you lunch and they get you breakfast and coffee and you have an assistant and it's like, it's so luxury. You know, it's, it's like flying business class as opposed to being stuck in the back of the airplane in economy. You know? <laughs> Writing novels is totally economy class writing, whereas television, there's actually money involved. So you, you, you definitely are, you're flying business, and that's way nicer. What a great way to explain that. I love that. So I'm kind of curious. So you started off in TV writing. How did you get there? Was that a, your intention initially, or did you kind of fall into it? Well, is the question, did I f- fall into writing for television or writing for entertainment in general because well I I just want to hear yeah either way well the truth is I've always always wanted to be a writer from like the time I can practically remember I mean I wanted to be either a basketball player or a writer and the basketball thing just never kind of panned out so sadly uh yeah (laughs) probably for the best um so after that I wanted to be a writer and I was a journalist for a while and I studied journalism um and then I knew that I wanted to write screenplays, and I um, moved to Hollywood, and I lived in L.A., and I did production work. Like, I was an assistant director and a location scout and did just whatever it took to make ends meet. Um, and then I wrote when, when I started. Actually, when I started, I, want, I thought I would be a sitcom writer, oddly enough. That's really? what I really loved. Um, but then I sort of got a glimpse of the world of sitcoms, and it's not – that's a tough – business and it's like really like it's hard being a sitcom writer is hard and takes a very particular talent and i'm not funny enough oh (laughs) you have to be really funny i mean like hilariously funny and also you have to be so thick-skinned about like flipping jokes out and just sitting in a room and like you know it's it's that's a really hard business anyway so i i wrote a script that wasn't that was like a thriller and people liked it and it wasn't my very first script. It was one of my very first scripts. And then I sold it. And I was like, huh, well, I guess maybe I write thrillers. But I wrote, this was a feature, a feature film. Um, and so I just sort of fell into that niche. I knew I was going to be a screenwriter of some kind, but I didn't know what kind. Hmm. So I worked in features for like five or 10 years. I did a lot of network. I mean, a lot of uh, studio jobs. I rewrote projects. I, I worked on Pocahontas for Disney. I was the original writer on that. I worked on that for like two years. I was the very first writer on Iron Man, actually, when it was a Fox project, but I don't have any credit on it or anything. I know I don't deserve any. And I wrote, I worked on like some of the Beethoven movies. I mean, I did like rewrites and I just lived that life. And then that side of the business really collapsed. They're just, all the studios got taken over by big multinational corporations and all the movies that they made are the movies that they make now, which are, you know, gigantic $200 million films that A, I can't really write, and B, there just aren't that many jobs. I mean, they only make a couple of films, and so they only need a couple of screenwriters to do it. And those guys make, you know, millions of dollars, but there's just not, there's just not the work. So 
there came a moment when I was like, hmm, what am I going to do? You know, I don't really have like, what's my career now? But I had a friend who worked at um, ABC and she said, you know, come pitch me a television idea. And I thought, like, I didn't even really watch that much television at the time. This was like 10 years ago. But I thought, OK, I just saw thought of a bunch of ideas and I went in and I pitched them. And she was like, well, those two suck. That one's OK. But this one's really good. Work on that. I was like, OK. And so I went back and pitched it again. She's like, great. And they bought it. And I just that was it. I was like, OK, now I'm a TV writer. Oh and gosh. I have to say, television writing is great. I mean, it's way if you're any of your, you know, people listening to this podcast are like, you know, I want to write for the entertainment business. Like, what should I do? I'm like, work in television. The best shows, you know, shows are fantastic now. There are so many different shows. There are so many different networks. It's really an apprentice system of people like start at the bottom, you know, and you can be on staff and you can learn how to do it. And there are showrunners and executive producers who will explain the process to you and edit your work. You know, I mean, when you start out, people just rip your scripts to shreds. But that's great. That's what you need to have happen. You know, you need to like see that this is how it's really done. And then you move up the ladder and, and it's a really great way to learn the craft. Um, it's really like, it's like the old fashioned studio system, right? Like in the thirties and forties where they would bring in writers and they would be taught by people and they would do like B movies, you know, you do really crappy television show, but you learn and the pace is like brutal, right? You know, you have to do a script every eight days and you just have to crack them really quick. You know, that like teaches you how to do it. So anyway, that's how I started. And then once, you know, once I got into it, I was like, oh, this is great. I love doing this. Oh, that's awesome. What's been your What's been your favorite part so far? It sounds like you really gravitated toward the television side. Um, is it the sort of collaborative work with that? What What's the most appealing part to you of writing for TV? Wow, the most appealing. I mean, I love like a good television show. I think is great to watch. So I love the finished project product. So this is one of the differences between writing a book and writing a television show or writing a screenplay. You know, people always ask which is harder, and I'm like, oh writing a novel is a thousand times easier than writing a screenplay because there's no rules for a book, right? You can make it almost anything you want and it can be any length. It can be really short. It can be really long. It can be take this point of view, that point of view, you know, you can digress and for a hundred pages talk about the existence of God and you know, you might get away with it. You might not, but I mean, you can do it, but you can't digress for five pages in a television show and talk about the existence of God. It's just not going to happen. So there are rules. There are rules in writing screenplays that you can break them, but you have to know what those rules are and you have to really understand the process and the format. And I've always said that when you write a script, it's so hard to do that like one person can't really do it by themselves. You actually need a bunch of people to write one single script. And, you know, maybe there are auteurs out there will tell you, no, I can do it by myself, but I think they're lying. I think that, you know, most people understand that you need a lot of voices because every Every beat of a TV show, a good one, is planned. There's going to be a plot twist here, and then like half a page later, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, you keep getting hooked. And bad ones, they're, I don't want to hold them up as an example, but a good television show, it keeps you going, keeps you going, keeps you going. So that part is the fun part. I'm somebody who rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. And so I like hand my script to somebody and say, okay, how do I make this better? And they give me ideas and then I rewrite it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's a little bit better. That's a little bit better. And that to me, that problem solving, that puzzle solving portion, it's fantastic. I just love it. You know I mean? I don't really like the blank page 
my first drafts are always terrible of everything, a book, a screenplay, they're just bad. But I love editing. I just love sitting there and like correcting and fixing and fixing and fixing and then making it better. It kind of makes me weird, I know, but that's my thing. No, I don't think so. I, I think that that I had another conversation a while ago about just the, the beauty of editing and editing as an art. And, and I, I really like that that you appreciate that part of it. I know that there's probably a lot of listeners who are maybe like, oh, I'm working on my first screenplay or I'm working on a, a, a draft for something. Do you have any advice to them about how to make it more collaborative? Is that just joining a writer's group or is do you have other advice for that? Well, a writer's group is a good idea for sure. As long as those people that are in the writer's group are like you trust them, you know, that they're not fools. Um, I mean, we're all fools, but like they're not really bad fools. And that really that you trust yourself, that you have an internal sort of monitor that says, okay, that person has a good idea, that person has a bad idea, and I trust my own voice enough to know the difference between the two so that I don't like take bad advice and go down bad roads, which everybody does, but you just, that's like, it's such a time waster. So yeah, I think that finding other people to work with is good. I think that the most important thing I would say about if you want to get into the television business is you need to read a lot of scripts and not like you need to watch a lot of television for sure. But more importantly, more important than watching the shows is sitting down and reading the episodes Um, because then you learn the craft. Then you learn and you see how it's done. And you can find a lot of scripts online. You can buy them online, but the real answer, and you know, everybody hates to hear this, is you need to go to Los Angeles and you need to go to like the Writers Guild Library. They have a great library at the Writers Guild on Fairfax and Third. <clears throat> and you just need to like spend weeks there just reading all the shows that you think are great and all the writers that you think are like fantastic and whatever it is, whatever it is that you want to do, the genre that you want to follow in, just read those. Um, and they also have it. Um, there's an Academy of Arts and Sciences, the, the Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Academy Library. They're also great. And you can just read hundreds of scripts. And like that's integral to doing it. That's if you want to work in the Hollywood system. And I, I think the world is changing, right? So who knows whether that's like the future or not. But for now, for the time being, it is the present. And if you want to get paid and if you want to have a career and you really want to like eat and not work as a Starbucks barista, that's, you know, kind of what you got to do. And it's a great education. You know, it really teaches you if you really break them down, really read those scripts and like sort of deconstruct them um, and figure out all the plot points and all the beats, the emotional beats of the characters and how they are done. And it really is fantastic. So that's the sort of practical advice of learning. The other thing that I think that, I mean, obviously there's Obvious ones like write a lot, you know, write write a ton of scripts, and most of them will be bad, but some of them will be good, and the ones that are good you show and you try to use them to get work. The thing that the sort of touchy feely piece of advice that I always have that I think is the toughest, and it's the one that I still am trying to figure out, is that I really think the important thing is that you figure out what you want to say about the world, really figure out what your point of view is on on everything, love and politics and you know, family and how you feel about your mother and your wife or your husband or everything. Find a a voice, find a point of view, because you're going to get rejected so much and you're going to get so many other people's opinions and they're going to tell you what they think your work should be about and what they think 
is the strong point of your work or the weaknesses of your work. And you need to have that voice and you need to have that sort of inner strength that says, yeah, okay, I hear you. And maybe that's a good point, but this is what I really want to say about the world. This is the thing that's important to me. And, you know, you get hired on staff on a show and you're writing for other people. There's a showrunner telling you this is what the show's about. And, and you have to sort of give them the thing that they want. But at the same time, it's really important that you have a voice. It's really important that you are explaining the world the way you see it, because that's why you've been hired. That's why you're a writer. I love that. Do you have um, a voice set for yourself that you try to adhere to and follow? I've been doing this for so long that my voice is who is me. I feel comfortable with that. Sometimes, and, and it's, you know, it's never perfect. I mean, sometimes you write something and it's not your voice and you're halfway through and you realize and you realize that it's terrible, you know, and then you have to throw it out or do something else. I mean, and we have all read like novels or screenplays in which we think that person that I admire, that writer who I think is great, well, she, you know, she obviously was writing something that she didn't entirely believe this time and it shows, right? You just mm-hmm. kind of go, eh, she, she phoned it in mm-hmm. and, and that's painful, but we all do it. Um, and you know, you forgive the person and you go read the next one, but the stuff that's really great is when you read it and it's like, oh yeah, that is who they are. They are just unabashedly showing you all their vulnerabilities and all their weaknesses and all their strengths and how they feel about the world. And that's great. I love that. I feel like you're kind of sharing with us sort of a a recipe for writing um, something that's very addictive. We talk about binge watching Netflix shows and talking about cliffhangers. You you mentioned earlier um, deconstructing screenplays to see what works. You talk about writing as fitting together this puzzle. Do you have any any insight as to how that all fits together into something that's truly addictive. And this is me as a viewer thinking that addictiveness is, you know, a good thing for television as well. And maybe it's not in the TV world. You know, addictiveness is like, it's sort of, you have to define your terms, right? I hope we're talking about the same thing. I think that what people want to watch, what they are really, what they really care about when they are watching a television show or they're reading a book and the reason that they can't turn it off the reason that they're addicted the reason that they can't that it's a page turner right in a in when it's a novel is that the character that you're watching is so compelling whatever their problem is whatever their character flaw is or whatever their goal is is so incredibly compelling that you just have to know what happens to that person Somebody once told me that you can boil all drama down to a character wants something really badly and can't get it. And that's drama. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's simplifying. It's reductionist, but there is truth in that. And it's like if you have a strong character with flaws and goals and weaknesses and strengths and desires, and those desires are interesting to you, you know, they have to be interesting to you, the viewer or reader, then you're going to keep going. You know, it's going to be really addictive. It's going to be powerful because you want to know. We, it's the core thing about storytelling. And so, I, you know, to me, all of the things that we talk about, like collaborating and vo- you're getting your voice, it's all about that compelling character. So I think that is the clue. I think to me, that's the key thing. That's the that's what makes a show great. That's what makes a book great. I mean, obviously, style works too. You know, I you know I. 
I'm a big fan of like Aaron Sorkin. I mm. think he's a great writer. I would say that a lot of the time I'm just a big fan because the dialogue is so hilariously wonderful. Are the characters that compelling? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes I'm just in it for the style, the flash. You know, I'll watch a Tarantino movie like and honestly, the Tarantino characters are kind of garbage, but there's so much going on. It's so fun to sort of watch that. But are those my absolute favorites? Probably not. My favorites are when it's really like the, the characters are just fascinating. Who are who are some of your favorite characters that you feel are drawn well or written well? Uh, in television or in novels? Either. Or, like, to me, the classic is The Sopranos. Tony Soprano's sort of character. This is a guy who gets stuff done. He's dark. He's dangerous. Um, he's moving forward. He's troubled. He's And it's all about power and family and you know money and sex it's all there it's like it's just really so well done i mean it's obviously it's like one of the greatest television shows of the last 30 40 years um and that's a great show for somebody who's an aspiring writer to study right you study those scripts those are fantastic there have been a um, bunch of books by an author named dennis lehane mm-hmm. uh, the books that I love are about this character named Coughlin. I think it was Tom Coughlin, and and it's like Live by Night. And there, there's a three books, and they're about Boston and um, about Florida and about mobsters in the 30s. And those characters are just so well drawn. And he's such a spectacular writer. And he's he's not a flowery writer. He's just a very precise, workmanly writer that I just like. And then you know, like I mean, I I sample television all the time, so I'm always like checking on it like right now i'm watching jessica jones have you seen that no it's on my netflix queue i haven't i haven't gotten to it yet she's a great character and she's you know she's fun and dark and and she's propulsive and compelling and i think she's really well done and i'm not like a big superhero you know because it's a marvel show and they don't overplay the superhero stuff it's very minimal it's mostly like a detective show but Mm. i love it i think it's great i love homeland i think that the carrie character is just spectacular and and so interesting and you know they kind of went off the rails but have you seen this last season Mm -mm. fantastic this season all takes place in berlin and the middle east and it's really really good and i love the saul character too the mandy potemkin character he's fantastic so yeah stuff like that so we talk about the power of characters and, and what a strong character can do for a work can you tell us a little bit about your main character in your two novels uh garrett riley yeah absolutely so garrett and this is interesting because it's also it sort of comes back to all the things we were talking about about voice and and point of view about the world. So, his character he's a 26 year old bond trader on Wall Street. His superpower, if you will, is that he's really good at recognizing patterns. That's how he makes money in the bond market. Um, and at the beginning of the first book, The Ascendant, he sees that somebody is attacking the American economy by buying up huge, I mean, selling off huge amounts of uh, treasury bills. Um, like $200, million, $200 billion worth of treasuries. And then he realizes that it's the Chinese. And then he understands that there's this invisible war going on between the United States and China. And that war is cyber and psychological and economic. And it is unseen to everybody but him and the government. And so then the government comes and recruits him to help fight that war because he's good at technology things and he's good at seeing patterns. But the thing about his character is that he's deeply distrustful of government and he's deeply distrustful of the military. And he's honestly, he's kind of an asshole. He's a pot smoker and a heavy drinker and he likes to flirt with women and he's always making passes at people. He's obnoxious. He's he's that classic sort of Wall Street guy that you just kind of hate. 
but at the same time, he's very wounded and sort of he's damaged goods. And he has an older brother who was killed in Afghanistan, who was a Marine and was killed by friendly fire. And so he's very distrustful of the military. And yet he's being recruited by the military to help sort of do this thing. So there's this sort of built in conflict. And the original idea for the for the books was that I, you know, I love big thriller novels, this sort of dumb Robert Ludlum, Tom Clancy kind of books, and I find them great. And I love you're sitting at some ski chalet and there's no snow and you paid all this money for this condo and you can't do anything and you see like a book on the shelf and you pick it up and you start reading and you want that book to be great, but so often they're not. And so often those those characters, those main characters in those thrillers are these sort of middle-aged men who are like used to be green berets and now they can kill you with their pinky and you're like, I just don't know that person. Like it's not, it's not somebody I've ever met, but you know, 26 year old bond trader who smokes a lot of pot and is always hitting on women. That guy, I know, you know, that guy I've met many times. Um, and so I wanted to make him an action hero. You know, I wanted to make him like the thriller hero of a book and I wanted him to be flawed and I wanted him to not be able to like solve all the problems of the world with a gun or with his fists. And I wanted him not to be able to solve all the problems in general, um, you know, to just have trouble. That's the opening idea of the book and that character. And I always, everything I ever write, I always start with character. Like mm. who is that character? What does he want and what's his problem? And this guy has very clear wants and he has very clear problems. So that was the first book. And the second book is the same guy and he has a team of people around him who sort of help him out. Only in the second book, the sort of geopolitics are more about Russia um, and that the book that's coming out now. And it's also about, it's one of my favorite books of all time is the Frederick Forsyth, uh, Day of the Jackal. And that sort of cat and mouse between, you know, an assassin and the cop who's trying to catch him. And I thought it would be great. The book's are often about economics in a weird way. That's okay when you talk about voice. One of the things that I'm obsessed with is like economics. I just find it totally fascinating and the flow of money through the economy. Um, and that's why Garrett Riley does what he does because that's what I find interesting. And so in this one, instead of being an assassin who's going to kill people, he's an assassin who's going to kill the economy. And Garrett has to f stop this assassin from destroying the American economy. And this assassin... It's all linked in with Russia and Russia's geopolitical ambitions. And, you know, that's I like stuff that's geopolitical. I like stuff that's political. I find that really part of the voice thing. I find that fascinating. Totally. Do you have plans then to continue with this character? I do. I want to I have an idea for a third book that I will start soon. I also want to do there's other, I have other ideas for other characters to write, too, for a different sort of a mystery novels. I don't know which I'll do next exactly. Uh, I'm trying to figure that out, but yes, this, this definitely want to continue. I mean, as I grow into old age, I just want to have a whole shelf full of books that I can, you know, people can pick up and I can continue to make money off of when I'm too old and addled to actually write anything new. Oh my gosh. Not at all. So you talk about kind of leaving a legacy through books. Do you feel the same way, uh, with your, with your shows that you've written? Um, sure. But you, you know, Writing for the screen is definitely you're you're part of a team. Mm. It's it's you might be like the architect of the building, but not exactly. I mean, you kind of are. I mean, uh, things are changing certainly in the in the television business. You know, I think there is the cult of the showrunner now, mm. um, and the creator of a show, and like you know, 
people like Matthew Weiner or J.J. Abrams or, you know, these guys who and women who um, create multiple shows or an, an iconic show like Sopranos or Mad Men. They definitely have a legacy and they are talked about as the sort of vision, the voice of those characters in that show. But I'm, I'm not uh, David Chase. I'm not Matt Weiner. I, I write stuff that's a little bit more prosaic and and that's the kind of stuff i like and i don't know that i'm that ever going to be that level of auteur so i don't really think about the legacy so much as i just try to write to interest myself like a lot of times i feel like I, i'm almost and this is going to sound weird i think of myself as an entrepreneur i'm an inventor and i and i don't know what it's like to be a real inventor i only know what it's like to be a writer but i have this vision in my head that inventors are walking around all the time going we really there's something missing like I, I need this little tool that can do this one thing and nobody's ever invented that like there's a there's a there's a space here there's a need in the marketplace for this one tool that nobody's invented so I'm gonna go invent that and I feel like that's what I do for for writing I'm like you know I just want to write a thriller that I can pick up where the main character isn't like the middle-aged killer and like that he's just a guy that I can actually understand and who's angry and subversive and like isn't really that patriotic but is working for the country at the same time like that guy, I kind of, I'm interested. Like, there's a need for that, so that's what I'm doing. I, I don't really write for a legacy. I, I write to sort of amuse myself. You know, I'm inventing the character that like fills the need, but yeah. the need's always in me, not in the audience. So you talk about TV writing being a, a sort of a apprentice system. I don't know what to call it. Um, do you have like one specific mentor that helped you or that like really gave you a push or some good advice? Or is it kind of more just the collaboration along the way? Oh, yeah, no, for sure. Like um, there, uh, the screenwriter, Amy Holden Jones, she wrote Mystic Pizza. She wrote the original Beethoven movie. She wrote um, the one with Robert Redford and Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore about he pays to sleep with the other guy's wife. Anyway, uh, big, big A-list screenwriter. Uh, she taught me how to write. She taught me how to write a screenplay. She's, I've written a screenplay and it was a mess. She read it and she goes, okay, this is a good idea, but this is what you need to do. And this is how you, this is how you beat out the character. And this is how you do all the emotional beats. And this is how you do the plot. She was very patient and really helped me and taught me how to do it. I, you know, that was incredible. That, that was the best education I possibly could have had. And I do try to do that. I try to pass that along to other people when I can. Um, and then for television, I worked with my very first TV job. I had, the producer was a guy named Mark Gordon, who um, produces, he's the producer on Grey's Anatomy and Criminal Minds. Uh, he has a show called Quantico on right now. He's a big TV producer. And he and a woman who worked for him named Deborah Spera, they taught me how to write television. They were like, okay, this is how you're going to break it into acts, and this is how you're going to, this is the cliffhanger you're going to have at the end of the first episode, second episode, and this is this is what's going to drive the show, and you know what's the engine of the show, and what's the engine of the plot, and they really like mentored me and explained how to do it. That said, I feel like I'm always looking for more mentors and more people to teach me because you can't really ever, you just have to keep learning. You know, you can't let it go. It's if it's the moment you think you're really good, you realize that you're not. You're just okay, and there's there's a lot of room to grow. Yes, <laughs> I've I've experienced that a lot myself. Like that's. Something always keeps you humble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I find that I keep myself humble by writing crap. <laughs> so I'm just curious, you you deal with rejection a lot in your industry. 
What do you do? Like, what did you do the first time that like a pilot that you wrote was rejected or turned down? Did that just drive you crazy? The very, my very first job I ever had, not the very first job, but the very first time I got hired to write a script, right? It was a feature screenplay. I was hired by Amblin. That's a Steven Spielberg's company. And it was a book that I was adapting. And I wrote a first draft and I handed it in and they hated it and they fired me. It was brutal. I just couldn't believe it. My very first job and I'd been fired right off the bat. And I went to a bar and I sat at the bar and I drank heavily for the entire night. Um, And then, um, you know, you sort of get up and do it again. The very first agent I ever had, I gave him a script and he goes, you know, I think he was sort of, I was what they call a pocket client, which means like he knows I'm not going to make him any money, but he's going to sort of nurture me along and and like maybe send out my script, maybe help me write on a script. And he said, you know, the script is good, but I could send it out. But I think really what you need to do is you need to get your nose broken. I'm like, what? He goes, you just need to have your nose broken more. And I'm like, this is a big nose, very (laughs) vulnerable. Um, And I, but I think what he meant and I, I take it to heart is, you know, you need to be a boxer who like gets in there and gets the crap beat out of you because and then get back up again because if you can't handle that then you're not going to be a working screenwriter you could call yourself a screenwriter but you're not going to be a working screenwriter because a working screenwriter takes the punches and makes the work better or moves on to the next project or you cope with it but you you have to have a very thick skin you have to have armor you know you have to have have your nose all cracked up and I, it doesn't, I mean, obviously if I write something and nobody likes it, it's painful. I do not. It's not like, this is not a happy occurrence. On the other hand, you know that you can keep going and you know that you can write other things and you just have to have the confidence. Again, it goes back to the voice, right? It mm-hmm. goes back to like knowing what you want to say about the world, knowing that you have a point of view about the world and that you have something to say. When you have something to say and you have that burning need to say it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you're, you know that you're going to write some crap. There's going to be bad stuff. And, like, that's okay. I mean, if you look at the body of directors or writers' works, novelists, screenplays, whatever, there's a lot of terrible stuff, you know? I mean, Joyce Carol Oates writes, like, a novel every year, and most of them are terrible. But every once in a while, they're good, you know? But, like, and she's Joyce Carol Oates. I mean, she's, like, the most famous novelist there is. But, I mean, I dare you to find someone who's read every single one of those books. Yeah. They're unreadable. <laughs> oh, I, I appreciate that so much. It's just really refreshing to know that, like, yes, it's okay to fail. You don't have to be perfect every time. Um, I think that's a message that people need and want to hear. Well, I think it's okay to fail. The thing that's not okay is to fail and give up. I mean, it's okay to fail and give up, too, honestly. It just means that you shouldn't be a writer. You know, you'd be something else. And it's probably better, that you, you know, be a doctor or a research scientist or whatever it is. Go do that thing that will help humanity and, and you'll do it better than being a writer. Because if you're so knocked around by getting criticism, it's just not the gig for you. Final question. Okay. Okay, last one. And then I'll, I'll let you get back to your life. <laughs> okay. What made you start writing a novel? In the television business, sometimes they you get a thing called a blind script deal, um, which means that a network has said, hey, Andrew, we want to work with you and we want to lock up your time for like a year and we don't know what the project is we're going to do together, but we know where you want to work with you. And so they just sign you up and they're, they're good and bad things about that. They're, they're not particularly relevant, but I had one of those deals. 
with an unnamed network. I knew I had six months before I had to sell them anything, before I had to walk in and go, okay, this is what I want to write. So I, I sort of was employed, but I wasn't employed doing anything. And so you sit down and you used to think, okay, what am I going to write? What am I going to do for them? And you need to have like a bunch of ideas because most of the time they go, uh, no, not that one. No, not that one. No, 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 no. Yes, that one. And so I had this idea for The Ascendant, for this character, Garrett Riley. I wanted to write, and I thought, oh, I'll write him. as a, It'll be a TV show. It'll be, I'll write him. He's a good character. And then I thought, you know, I want him to be subversive, and I want him, I want the book, I want the story to be political, and I want it to be, like, I don't really care if you like him. I just want him to be who he is. He, he's a slightly unlikable character. And so I thought, I don't want to write him as a television show. I'm just going to write him as a book. Like, I, you know, I hadn't done it before, and I was just like, okay, I'm going to just see what, how it goes. And the truth is, when I wrote the book, my idea was to um, self-publish it. I just thought, oh, I'm just going to write the book. I'm going to format it so that you can buy it on Amazon.com as an ebook, and I'm not going to take any notes. Nobody's going to tell me whether it's good or bad or what to change. I'm just going to write it. And so I did, and that was it. And it was incredibly liberating because... I didn't like worry about it. I didn't worry like, you know, if 10 people read it, I was totally fine with that. That was like, great. So I just wrote this thing that was purely and simply my obsessions and this character. And then six months later, I, you know, my agent's like, what have you been doing? And I was like, oh, I wrote a book. And they're like, well, what? Can we read it? And I was like, oh, no, I don't really want you to read it. They're like, yeah, let us read it. So I let them read it. And they're like, okay, let us set this up with a publisher. I'm like, what? No, I just want to self-publish it. They're like, no, no, let us, we'll send it to a literary agent and, and we'll see if you can sell it. And so honestly, at this point, I was really like, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't really want to do that. But I'll, okay, fine. And so they sent it to a literary agent and, you know, he loved it and he like talked to me about it and it was great. And then we sold it. So it was like kind of just pure luck. Like, and I know that, you know, most people are like, I sent out my manuscript to 47 different publishers and the 48th published it. It was like, I just got lucky. I got totally lucky, and the first agent who read it loved it, and then a bunch of publishing houses loved it, and it was like, there's no rhyme or reason. I can't, it's not like the book's so great. It's just fun, and I think I just got lucky. So that's why I did it, and that's how it happened. Thank you for sharing that story, and thank you for... I I, I wish it was a story more of like, and then I sent it out to my 300th different publisher, and I was... (laughs) I'm not trying to be falsely modest. I just, I think sometimes things just click, you know, and you get lucky. And believe me, I've had plenty of times in writing television shows where like nobody wants to buy it. You can't get hired and nobody wants to make it. And it's like, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm glad it worked out. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) And I'm also so glad that you agreed to, to speak with us today and to share your wisdom. I learned so much today. I I don't have a background in screenwriting. And so it was absolutely fascinating today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. It was totally fun. And as you can tell, I can talk forever. So bring, bring me back on the next book.